This is Loneliness Explored, a podcast brought to you by the Campaign to End Loneliness. I'm Paul Can, and last week we talked about bereavement and how we find our way forward from grief. And today we're talking about the power of conversation, the two-way exchanges, the shared communication about what's on our mind, what matters to us, the talking to someone who is interested and the genuine active listening and how we can use conversation to maybe navigate our feelings, our ways through loneliness. And I'm joined today by two brilliant guests who know a thing or two about this. Mike Niles is the founder of Be Friend, an organisation which creates opportunities for face-to-face connection across generations. Hi, Mike. Hi there, nice to meet you. And by Gillian Sandstrom, who is a psychological scientist at the University of Essex studying social interaction. Hi, Gillian. Hi, nice to see you, Paul. So, Mike, your charity, Be Friend, is clearly a thriving service, helping people connect through conversation. How did you make this happen? Well, I'm from Doncaster and I lived down in London for a long time and decided I'd kind of got to a stage with London where I wanted to move back to my roots and saw that there was a huge disconnect between older people who tended to be living on their own and maybe younger people who just went about their day-to-day business and never the twain met. So just wanted to bring about a bit of community cohesion, really, just try and facilitate some of the connections in my hometown and that was back in 2017 and it's gone from strength to strength since then. And you know you've been successful and effective in reaching people? We hope so. I guess the numbers and the stories speak for themselves but particularly over the last year it's been such a valuable thing to be happening and the fact you know so many people have come forward and wanted to support isolating older people. You know normally we're about trying to reduce isolation And over the last year, we've been trying to encourage people to isolate for their own safety. So it's been quite a strange one. But just the general response of members of the community saying, almost putting their hands up and saying, you know, we see this issue and we want to help has just been incredible, particularly over the last year. But as you know, as you guys know, and as we all know, this is an issue that isn't just exclusive to a pandemic. Absolutely. And it's not exclusive to any one age group or any stage in life either. Gillian, you've thought long and hard about how we interact. I've been following your work for a while and how we jump into those interactions, those conversations. Can you tell us something about your work? So I'm a psychologist and I do research on basically minimal social connection. So I look at people's social networks, but instead of focusing on the close friends and family who are obviously very important to our well-being, um, I've just been more interested in the people who are sort of on the on the edges of the social network, um, which includes acquaintances or weak ties. Um, and then I sort of shifted even one step further and have, have done a lot of work looking at talking to strangers. So, so I'm trying specifically to understand why people are so nervous about it, because we benefit so much when we do it. There's so many different things we can get out of it. Um, So why are we so worried? And can I figure out ways to help people get over those concerns and and reach out a little bit more so they can connect? Gillian, you've 
looked at the different ways in which we can make those links, cross those barriers. Tell us about those and, and how have you found them to be successful? I mean, you even talk to people who are total strangers on the London Underground. I know that because I've read your accounts of that. But tell us how, it, how it's worked and how it's succeeded. You know, it, it's it's hard because we're getting these mixed messages, like like Mike said. So we have this sort of fear of other people. Um, you know, I, I'm usually out in the park across the street every day. That's my sort of mental, you know, reset button in the afternoon. I go for a walk around the park and get some fresh air. And I'm always smiling and waving at people because I know how important it is. Um, and when the pandemic started, I, I didn't even want to look at people because it felt like they were dangerous. And so it, it took a little extra effort to to get over that and realize you know, hey, we're going through this crazy thing together. The least I can do is sort of acknowledge my fellow humans. And I, all, I, all you need to do to, to make that happen is just make eye contact with people and smile and maybe say hi. So yeah, even even through this whole past year, I've been reaching out in the ways that I can and still talking to strangers and sharing my stories about it. I had an amazing conversation actually this afternoon uh, with an older gentleman and we talked about photography and baseball and pantomimes. <laughs> it sounds amazing and I just want to understand a bit more Gillian why why am I so terrified of engaging in conversation with strangers or being engaged there was I was sitting in the park basking in the sun in Brighton the other day. I was just sitting there, a wonderful day, and this guy came past me and started talking to me. And I thought initially like he was going to be threatening and I thought he was going to talk about my taking up too much space on the bench or something. Why is one's initial reaction so fearful? I don't know. Um, I think part of it is is the norms. I think it's in our society right now, it isn't normal to, to talk to strangers. Um, and that's a real shame. But because of that norm, I think our first reaction when someone does it is we have to make some sense of it. And we can't read people's minds. Um, so it's really hard to make sense of it. And I assume that what they're thinking first is, do I know you? Like if I if I start a conversation with someone, I assume their first thought is, do I know you? And then when they realize that they don't, I think their second thought is, uh-oh, um, are you weird or crazy? Do you want something? Are you dangerous? Like all those kind of things. And so I know that I just need to persist to the next stage, which is where I hope to get to, which is where they realize, oh, you're just trying to be friendly. I've been looking at specific fears that people have and there's just so many of them. So we worry about, you know, are are we capable of doing this? Do we know, are we going to run out of things to say? How do, how do we do this? Like, we worry about our competence. We worry about the other person's competence. Because I think we somehow have this overblown fear about awkward silences. <laughs> you know, everybody lives in fear of what happens if there's an awkward silence. Hint, nothing bad happens if there's an awkward silence. Um, so we worry about competence. We worry um, that, you know, what if they don't like me? What if they don't want to talk to me? We worry about whether we're going to enjoy it, whether they're going to enjoy it. And actually, it seems like we worry more about what the other person is thinking and whether they're going to have a positive 
outcome. So we worry more about other people than we do about ourselves, which is interesting and actually kind of lovely. So is your message, Jillian, we, ju- we just got to do it. We just got to remind ourselves to smile, to just say something, just say anything and not be afraid and just do it and try to gradually share that kind of like become infected with that spirit of reaching out. Is that what you think we should try to do? Absolutely. I've I've done a bunch of research studies where um, I've brought strangers together and they have a conversation and I ask people to predict how the conversation's going to go. Then they actually talk to someone and then I ask them, okay, how did it actually go? And, you know, over and over again, people say it went much better than they expected. None of the things they worried about actually happened. But (laughs) what I started to notice is that it didn't seem to affect what they thought would happen in their next conversation, right? So I think it's easy to have one pleasant conversation, um, but then think, well, I don't know who this next person is. Why would I expect a pleasant conversation next time? And so I I ran a study relatively recently um, where I induced people to have multiple conversations in a short period of time. So they had to have a a conversation with a new person every day for a week. Um, And my hope was that by doing that, by having that practice, that people would start to see that there was a pattern, that it wasn't just that one conversation that happened to go well, that was just an accident, that actually it's something that happens all the time. And then, you know, hopefully people would start to learn that the next one's probably going to go well too. And that did seem to happen. So I think, yes, the message is practice does make perfect. I know it's scary and I know people are going to be starting in different places and maybe have to work up to it slowly. You can start just by making eye contact, then a smile, then then a hello, and then, and then, you know, get to that point where you have a chat. And if you do practice, it will get easier and you will see that it's generally always positive. So practice makes perfect. And uh, I'm going to try this particularly, Gillian, having read your barista study, which I thought was great, about how I should just not just do the contactless and grab the latte from the barista, but, you know, say a pleasant thing or two uh, and see how that goes. My problem is I'm always a bit worried about the 11 people behind me in the queue for the barista but it's great messages. I think there's a certain window of time where you, you're you waiting for your coffee anyway, so you're not taking up yeah. someone else's yeah. time. But it's a great message for the whole of the queue anyway. But Mike, uh, you're working across the generations, which is, I think, a really important and probably neglected area of work. Can you can you say something about how you you cross those generational uh, boundaries in your work. Yeah, and, and kind of leading on from the surprise of conversations and getting some of the joy from some of the nuggets of the conversation maybe you weren't expecting, you definitely get that intergenerationally. And the surprise that comes from it is the things that gives you a bit of the reward, I guess, for want of a better word. So I got introduced through our project to a chap who's 106 um, and he lives in Rotherham and he was full of, you know, full of beans, full of stories. And so when I met him and he just dropped into conversation that he was invited by Elvis to go and sing at Graceland with him one evening and stopped over at Graceland. And and then I was actually chatting to a lady yesterday uh, called Margaret and she was chatting, she was quite nervous. And I think when you have that first conversation and particularly when it's uh, maybe a, a younger bloke calling an older lady and, you know, you're told about scams and being careful, which is good. 
10 minutes into the conversation, she's talking about how she used to be protesting on the picket line for the uh, minor strike and how she used to sleep over and be a bit of a, not an anarchist, but you know what I mean? She was, she was standing up for what she believed in. And you, it's those kind of conversations where you're not expecting it to go into a cert, in a certain direction and it just completely, almost like left field comes and gets you. And that's kind of the feedback we get from so many people who sign up to do this. Because when you're speaking to someone maybe 40, 50 years older than you, you don't expect to have things in common. You don't expect to even necessarily find some of the stuff they are talking about or their experiences interesting. And the feedback we're getting is that it's as good for the volunteers' well-being as it is for the older person. They are getting as much out of this as the people they are signed up to, you know, kind of support. And that's, they're the nuggets, they're the good bits um, and the reason to do this kind of stuff. I'm just interested to hear how you kept those conversations going, Mike, during lockdown, during the pandemic. Particularly over the last year, it's been easier because people have seen the need for it. So they've seen the, the isolation people are facing. They want to help. They already know what they're getting into. I think in, you know, prior to the pandemic, we, what we wanted was for people to pop in on the way home from work, dropping the kids off at school, on the way back from the shops, for a cuppa and a chat. If loneliness was a brand new concept, like never heard of before, just landed today, and we knew that someone down our street, round the corner, in our community, and we work with older people, so I'm going to use that as an example, an older person was on their own. They didn't see someone for weeks at a time. And they had no one looking out for them. Would our instinct be to post an iPad through the door or to make sure they had a login to Netflix? Because I would argue that it's human nature. We would go and have a chat with them and in our own way, try and make them feel or help them feel that they weren't on their own. And I think that is at the crux of what we're trying to achieve. Yes, digital has its place. You know, it's been a a lifeline during this last year, but it's the human connection and just those conversations that have really transformed someone's psyche from thinking this is just me on my own, particularly over the last year in such a crisis time, to thinking and realising actually, you know, this is a shared experience and I'm not on my own and I can reach out. And that's brilliant. How how then do you make that relationship an equal relationship? Sometimes befriending has been described as if it were unequal, somebody doing something to somebody else. But you've obviously succeeded in making a flourishing equal relationship between the two people. Yeah, and it's so important. Any friendship has to be an equal partnership. Um, if If there's a balance either way, I mean, even if you think of your own lives, like if someone's making all the effort, you very quickly get fed up of that friend. And it's the same in this. If it's going to go on to be a real meaningful long term friendship, you have to try and make it equal. I don't think there's any formula and it really depends on the individuals involved. But the way we speak to our volunteers or the people who sign up is very much, you're not going and, you know, necessarily giving your time to support this person. We are trying to build community cohesion. We're trying to just introduce people to each other who can have this longer term relationship. It's just companionship at the end of the day. It's We're not asking people to go and clean or cook or do jobs. It's purely for friendship. And I think that's the angle we have to come at because, you know, our aim as a, our model is, yes, we're going to do the introductions. Yes, we're going to be the facilitators. But actually, we want this to be an indefinite thing, like an indefinite community connection 
that can go on for many years. And in many cases, they are doing. I mean, if you think of the scale of the issue that we're facing, and obviously the issue is as it is now, and the population is ageing, so it is only going to get bigger. Um, the only way we have any hope of really tackling this is if the community step forward and help. In our case, that is what's happening, um, and we hope it does have long-term impact. It sounds to me like it will be likely to continue of its own accord. Um, you keep an eye on that, do you, to make sure people aren't getting bored or frustrated or that you know you need to do something differently yeah I think for the particularly for the first few months you know when it's brand new and you've met someone brand new we want to make sure it's going well on both sides really make sure both parties are happy so we check in we've got a really small team of um, brilliant staff who just make you know facilitate those relationships and try and support them to get going as the friendships go on we almost withdraw a little bit we try and make sure that they have that space to develop the friendship however they choose. Um, but we're always there in the background. So if there are any issues, bearing in mind many of the people we support are in maybe their 80s, 90s, or the chap I mentioned earlier in the hundreds. There are sometimes some safeguarding issues that we need to support with. But for the most part, we're just there as a silent friend in the background to try and make sure things are continuing as, as best they can. Brilliant. And I what I'm interested in, Gillian, is what is the way in which we're going to keep this going. I mean, particularly post-COVID, if there is such a thing, people very nervous about social contact. How are we going to keep this going, this magical thing that you and Mike have have created? And, and also, how do we turn the inspiration of a few people doing wonderful smiling and everything uh, how do we make that a cultural thing how do we make that the way we do things in this community that's the million dollar question isn't it <laughs> i wish i knew the answer um the the only answer i've come up with is if a lot of us in our small ways tried to make this change we start to change the norms, don't we? I just hope that we can create a sort of a ripple effect. And like we said at the beginning of the chat today, you know, I do hope that COVID has sort of helped us realize how much our whole social network means to us. You know, of course, the people that we're closest to are going to matter the most, but I hope that it's reminding us that we have lots of people in our lives, not just those few that we're close to, and and that we're going to value those people a bit more. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of us have been missing chatting with the favorite barista at the coffee shop and those kind of relationships that we take for granted. So so I do hope that we can hold on to this and remember what it was like to be missing these kind of conversations and to be aware of how easy it is to fall into feeling loneliness. Like I think a lot of people have felt it and maybe have been surprised by how small a distance it is from, from where they usually are to feeling completely isolated. And if people can remember that and, and sort of be aware that it's happening to lots of people, even after things go back to normal, I'm using air quotes, you can't see them on a podcast, but air quotes, normal, um, that, you know, maybe it does help us sort of think about others and, and reach out. And yeah, I, I, I had a grumpy day recently. And I think I'm hoping that's also something that the pandemic has done is made us 
aware that and more willing to talk about things like mental health and depression, you know, all these things that so many more of us have been experiencing. I think it sort of made it a little bit more normal. And I hope that means people are more willing to talk about it. Um, but I, I had a bad day a little while ago and I went for my walk in the park. And like I said earlier, I'm usually the one sort of deliberately trying to smile and connect with other people because I know I can make a positive difference to others. Um, but that day I was feeling so down that I was not even looking at people. I was just stuck in this negative spiral in my head. Um, and somebody looked at me and smiled at me and and it just it was just a little tiny thing but it was enough to sort of break me out of that negative cycle in my head you know it's not like i immediately felt better but it was enough to sort of shift things a little bit and and so i hope just sort of more broadly that if people get that reminder of how much it can mean those little small things those little small connections that we can make even if you're too nervous to have a conversation with someone there are these even smaller ways that you can do it like just just looking at people and smiling and nodding and acknowledging our shared humanity i think can make such a huge difference and hopefully this whole thing has just reminded us of that and and made us more aware of it and when you were feeling grumpy that day you weren't near one of Mike's clubs, because if you'd popped in there, you obviously would have been lifted and felt sunny and smiley all over again. Because I wanted to ask you, Mike, are there places, communities, locations, you know, things going on where it's particularly friendly and well-connected, where you see conversation happening more naturally? I think from my experience in sort of, you know, former mining northern towns it's those community amenities so it is the local pub the local community center the high street with your local um shops that you know the owner and you know the staff and they are dwindling um particularly in areas that we live up up in yorkshire um you know the the transport links are reduced because it's not financially viable the pubs are closing down the high street is you know next to abandoned in many local towns and villages and we've got to be careful when we talk about asset-based communities and and the stuff that's there the library the whatever for people who are physically or psychologically unable to travel or leave the house or just that anxiety or confidence to reach these places they should still be considered part of our community they are still just as valuable conversations with those people are just as important and their well-being is should be considered just as high as people who can attend or can get to places. Um, you know, in, in for example, in Doncaster, where I'm from, it's the largest geographical borough by size in, in England. From one side to the other, you could be driving for 30 to 40 minutes. Um, they're huge. So just to have something in the centre of town just isn't a solution. And I've seen loads of amazing things sort of you mentioned about encouraging conversation. There's loads of places that have now become pedestrianised. So streets where they've stopped the traffic and, you know, the shops sprawl out into the middle and there's seating and there's a lot more opportunity to connect. That's got to be a positive. And I think they're seeing it, you've seen it more in European cities as well, particularly over the last year. And just to kind of touch on something Gillian was saying earlier, I do think there's such a fine line between us seeking our own moments of isolation, going off for a walk, and you know it whatever home situation we're in just having 10 minutes for ourselves there's also a really fine line between that and forced solitude 
or enforced solitude, which is kind of what many of us experienced over the last year. And it takes that choice away from you. And it is a completely different experience. Julian will know a lot more about this from a what what's happening in our brains and what this means. But loneliness is affecting people of all ages. And when they're forced to stay home and play on the Xbox or they're not allowed to see their friends from school, it's different to choosing to spend all day on the Xbox. And particularly the same with older people. When they can't get out and they can't go and see people and they're told to stay home, that is enforced solitude. And it has such a different impact on your own worth, your own feelings of self-worth. And that's something that when hopefully we're coming out of the pandemic that we can really encourage. And like you're saying, provide that environment for people to engage again. Now, we have in England, and it's also happening in other parts of the UK, a loneliness strategy, a government strategy for loneliness. And I'd be very interested in your thoughts about how such a strategy could help us do more talking and more listening to and with one another. So I'd like to make you both loneliness minister in turn for a day each. And I'd be just really interested to know what you would do if you were loneliness minister for a day and you had the responsibility to try and uh, promote conversation, promote, you know, more connected communities, promote these ways in which we can come together. Would it be millions of happy to chat benches or would it be more intergenerational projects what would you like to do i wonder jillian would you like the power of being loneliness minister for a day no i would not that's too much pressure uh, <laughs> um i would love it if the government could fix this problem but i'm a bit skeptical that that's possible and i think it has to come down to community and individuals so um things like mike's befriend um are really important because it can't just come top down it has to come bottom up too but i i think somehow we need to give everybody permission to talk and i guess one one thing that that brings to mind is i arrived in the uk i think the year after the Olympics. Um, but everybody tells me that during the Olympics, everybody was talking to each other and there was this real sense of community. And somehow, you know, it was totally okay during those few weeks, but somehow not okay afterwards. And somehow we have to figure out how to get to that state more often and ideally how to stay there. And we just need people to feel like they have permission to talk and make people aware that people do like to have a chat and you shouldn't worry that people aren't going to want to talk because most people will want to talk. Um, people like you more than you think. So you don't need to be so worried. So I, I wish I had the magical power of giving everybody permission because it, feel, it feels like people want that explicit permission and they, they need that to feel like they're able to do this. So, so that doesn't entirely answer your question because I don't actually have a magic wand. But <laughs> No, I think it, it answers the question perfectly, Gillian. And I love that people like you more than you think is something I shall hold close in the future. Uh, what about you, Mike? Do you crave the power of being loneliness minister? And what would you do with it? Absolutely not. But I would take it for a day if it was just a, just a single day. I completely agree with what Jaleen was saying. I think providing permission and providing, like you were saying earlier, the spaces and the environment to do it. I do think there's a role for 
the corporate world as well. There's a lot of emphasis on corporate social responsibility, wanting to do projects in the community, particularly businesses that are based in communities and employ many people in those communities. I'd like to see possibly less going and painting school playgrounds and those one-off days and potentially a bit more investment in longer-term conversations or, you know, the great get-together as an example, organising community events in communities and businesses maybe taking the lead on that. Um, it's something, you know, businesses invest so much money in and so much time in getting this right and really engaging the community. And essentially, the community is their workforce. So it's a, it's such a positive thing to do. And I think if I was the Minister for Loneliness, I'd maybe look at something along those lines because business, I think, has to be consulted and has to be worked with to try and find a solution. Okay, you got the job. I think that's absolutely right. And I think what you've both been talking about today is the fact that we could do something in the next five minutes or five hours tomorrow, we could easily do something that would make it more possible, would give each other more permission to connect in those small ways that would actually help us a lot. But we can also do things, as you were just saying, Mike, that build for the next five years, you know, that would build those communities together, that would make sure your pairs of befriended and befriender come together and want to come together because it's the long term. But we, we start with the short term. We start with our own impulse to reach out. And uh, I'm very struck. I'm just borrowing your phrase, Mike, uh, that no one should have no one. And so what do we do about it? And we can act now. I feel we could have had a whole podcast series devoted to your thoughts about the conversation, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So I just want to thank my guests, Mike Niles and Gillian Sandstrom, very much indeed. Next time, we're going to be looking at the power of communities. And if you'd like to find out more, please do get in touch by going to our website, campaign to end loneliness.org or find us on twitter at endloneliness uk but until next time thank you very much indeed for listening <laughs>